Welcome to the We Go Places podcast, where we catch up with We Go grads who share with us the story of the journey to their unique careers. I'm your host, Brian Turnbaugh, English teacher at We Go since 2001, and you just heard intro music from Andy Georgieff, class of 2022. Today, I catch up with Aaron Russell, formerly Silk, from the class of 2006, manufacturing manager at International Paper. Aaron will share with us what it was like balancing her studies in opera and business management while at DePaul University. Erin will also share with us how she continues to ascend at International Paper, where she began as a customer service temp and through hard work and recognition from her mentors, is now serving as manufacturing manager at one of the biggest paper companies in the world. Joining us from the class of 2006 is Erin Silk Russell. Erin, tell us what you do. Hi guys, Erin um, Russell here. I am a manufacturing manager for International Paper at the North Lake Container Facility in North Lake, Illinois. So Erin, what did you do once you left WeGo? So I actually went to DePaul University. Um, I studied vocal performance and business. So when I was at West Chicago, I was heavily involved in the music program there, uh, studied opera when I was at DePaul, and then also gained my business degree. When I graduated in 2010, that was in the middle of a recession. So I decided to uh, change paths and, and try my hand at manufacturing and have been there ever since. So I've actually been at International Paper for 12, almost 13 years since I've graduated. I started in customer service as uh, actually a temp, temporary labor, um, was in that position for two years. Then I moved into bulk packaging sales and sold for two years. Uh, and then from there, went into a production management program with International Paper internally. That was a year program just to learn the manufacturing side, the equipment, from there, I became a process improvement manager, which is a quality manager, uh, had some progressions there, and now most recently, manufacturing manager or plant manager for international paper right now. Sounds like this company has been really supportive in uh, allowing you to ascend uh, within it. So we'll get into uh, all the cool things that this company has, has uh, allowed you to really flourish there. Um, but let's go back to the the, the left brain, right brain yeah. stuff that you were able to do while you were at uh, DePaul. Uh, let's talk about the music part. So you were an opera major. Tell me about that. I was. So when I um, was actually in the program, it is set up more like a music conservatory at DePaul. So when I had auditioned, there were about 1,200 people that had submitted applications and audition tapes. From there, it was actually down to, I believe, 100 students were able to um, perform or audition live um, for DePaul. And so uh, from that 100, there were only about 12 that were selected to get into the vocal performance program. So I was one of the 12 at the time. Wow, <laughs> that that was, how great is that? Okay, so I'm going to have a bunch of music questions sure. with this. So tell me about the... I mean, obviously, like in in many ways, and and correct me where I, I may be ignorant of this. There's obviously music theory, and there's things that you have to know about being a musician. Sure. But you also, because you are a singer, you are an instrument yourself. In that you have to prepare your body, your, your all parts of you to to because being opera singers got to be so intense. Absolutely. What what what's the physical demands of being an opera student? So for those that aren't familiar with opera, um, when you perform opera, there are no microphones. And if 
for those that have ever been to the Lyric Opera or those that have not been to the Lyric Opera, that space is huge. And so there is, like you mentioned, a huge physical demand for that. So um, making sure that your lungs are nice and strong. So a lot of um, singers will do yoga or swimming just to build up those muscles. And then obviously your core strength is, is absolutely imperative as well. So what, what was your uh, preparation for that? What was, what was your kind of go-to uh, strength builder for that? For me, I loved yoga. Um, just from a headspace perspective, it was just really helpful. And then it kind of incorporates not only um, building up your lungs, but also your core strength. So for me, that was um, absolutely integral uh, to the performance part of it. And then also, you know, when you're a singer, you have to, when you're performing very often, you have to, um, stick to a little bit of a different diet. So it's kind of interesting for those that aren't in it. Um, things like you, you know, if I'm going to sing at night, I, that day, I won't use any ice in my drinks because that'll freeze my vocal cords or I'm very cognizant the week if I'm doing a lot of performing, not to eat any dairy. Cause that kind of clogs up your vocal cords and things like that. So there's a diet perspective to it. And then also, you know, obviously exercise as well. So the other thing is that, and I'm also kind of going from what I, I, I just gleaned from my basic understanding of opera. Um, what's language study like? Because you would have, I mean, there's Italian, yes. German and, and others. Do you have to know the language so you don't, that you're singing in or how does that work? That's a great question. You don't necessarily have to know the language, but there are diction classes that I took at DePaul mm. so that you could look at the words and be able to speak it. So it sounds like you are fluent in that language. But as far as studying, so, you know, a lot of, like you mentioned, a lot of the operas are done in a foreign language. So when I would prepare for a role what I would do is look at the music. I would have the translation as well because it's really important to understand what you are performing or understanding the gist of the song that you are performing. So I would have the phonetic spell out of how to pronounce everything and then the, you know, say Italian to English translation as well. So that's absolutely integral as you're studying that you should know the Italian or French or German as well as knowing whatever that English translation is. Did you have a favorite language to sing in? For me, Italian was the easiest. Um, I Because I took some Spanish courses at West Chicago, Spanish and Italian have a lot of similarities in the language. Um, and it's a romantic language. I, I just think it's very beautiful. The hardest one for me was French because of the nasal vowels. For English speakers, it's a lot. It's a lot more difficult to, um, in my opinion, get that language down pat. And then German's actually not that difficult to learn um, because it is very similar to English. What was so? What? How do you um, kind of increase the exposure of performance while you're within the program? Do you? Does it? Uh, like what were, how many shows were you in and, and how, how does, how does that work with, uh, the actual delivery of performance as an assessment? So I was on scholarship for performance when I was at DePaul. So I was required to audition and perform for any of the operas that they did throughout the year. So, um, they would put on typically two to three operas. So I would be required to, um, perform in, in those either in a role or in the chorus, and then from there, I would have to be in the choir as well. So those were the demands. Now, rehearsals typically would be a few days a week. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I was also going to business school. So it was a little bit difficult because my rehearsals would get over at 1030 or 11 o'clock at night for dress rehearsal. And then I would have my business classes early at eight o'clock in the morning. So it was a little bit of a balance because with the music rehearsals and things like that were a little bit later in the afternoon and evenings. And then my business courses were in the mornings. Wow. <laughs> so uh, a couple more questions about uh, the, the opera uh, program. Sure. Did, did you, did it, 
did it avail itself to any kind of travel? Did you get to go to like Europe and see any shows or what was, what was your uh, experience with that? So they did have a study abroad program. I was working in the summer, so I was not able to attend them, but a lot of my friends did do um, a month or two in Italy or um, there are some music programs or music festivals that you could audition for uh, locally or, um, you know, things like Ravinia, Grant Park, Chorus, they would do things like that over the summer or things, you know, in Colorado, they had Aspen. So that was a very popular one that some students would audition and perform in. Um, I did not have that opportunity, but I will say that what was nice doing music in Chicago, you were exposed to a lot of different types of music and something that they had offered when I was a student at Lyric, Lyric Opera, and then also at Chicago Symphony, they would offer student tickets, discounted tickets. So I could go see the symphony on a weekday for $10, or I could go see an opera at Lyric Opera for $25. So, you know, if you look at ticket prices now, it was great because I was able to get exposed to a lot of different music. I would also go to a jazz club and see, you know, a jazz showcase or something like that as well, just to get exposure to a few different types of genres as well. What when you're watching opera now, and maybe this would be helpful for people listening to this who wouldn't know what to look for, or I'm sorry, I, sh- I should say what we would should listen for. Mm-hmm. How do we know we're in the presence of greatness? greatness. When we're yeah, like when we're listening to it, like what 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 do we have to attune our ear for when we're listening? So that's a really interesting question, and it's. It really depends. The answer is going to depend on the individual, right? So for me, when I was deep into opera, I was what you would consider a dramatic soprano. So that's going to be very rich, very strong voice. Um, And so that's kind of what I tend to listen for. But, you know, you have your greats like Renee Fleming, uh, Maria Callas, So you do, you know, Placido Domingo. So there are well-known opera singers that you just listen to. And to me, it's always the chill factor, right? So if I'm listening to a singer and I get those chills, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's one of the greats. So um, for me, uh, as far as dramatic sopranos, one of my favorites would be Deborah Boyd. How often do you get to see shows now? Like that, I mean, I mean, or do you do you access most of this like like just catching up on YouTube? Or uh, when was the last live show that you were able to to enjoy? So that's a great question. It has been a while, unfortunately, for me. As I've pivoted in my career, I also have a three year old. My life has has shifted a bit, right? So in order for me to enjoy uh, opera at this point, I have a record player and I like to collect um, records. That's one of my hobbies. So, um, you know, I'll go to Half Price Books and I'll be able to get some um, some classic opera and I'll play it on the on the record table. That's something that is nice because I'm exposing my son to at a very young age. Um, but as far as seeing a show, it's probably been I would say um, five years. The last show that I saw was La Boheme, which is one of my favorites at Lyric. Oh, that's so cool. I might have to ask you to make a Spotify list for us so we can know what to listen for. Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, so we got ourselves a really great left brain, right brain scenario here where you're doing something incredibly artistic, but then you're doing something very logical in the business. What was that like to make that switch, you know, during the day? So tell me about your coursework in the, in business. So in business, I studied mostly business management. I took accounting courses, calculus, things like that. Um, and I had always in high school excelled at both. So I was always in advanced math courses and things like that. And then in music, heavily involved in music as well. What a lot of people that aren't involved in music probably don't realize is music theory is very similar to math. So I would say there is some correlation there. Um, the artistic part of it when I'm singing or performing in liberties and things like that, um, definitely definitely plays in the in the right right brain left brain 
part, but as far as music theory, there are some connections between that and math. Um, for me, it, it broke up the day I was able to use both sides of my brain. I felt well-rounded and even now I have that. So right now I'm a manufacturing manager and that's my, my job, but then I also am still doing music and I do community chorus and things like that. So I still am able to have that balance for me personally. I need that in my life. It's a kind of a, a, a good follow-up question for that because you were so busy with what you were doing. What What's like your best like study hack that you remember that was very effective for you while you were uh, kind of balancing both of these uh, parts of, of your study? That is a great question. I think now it is a lot more, you have a lot more distractions than when I was going through college, right? Mm-hmm. We had my freshman year of high of, of college, we still had razor phones. We didn't have smartphones at that point. So you didn't have as much distraction as what you have now. Being a double major, I had to be very strategic as far as time management. I had more of a work hard, play hard mentality. I was at the library from Sunday night to Wednesday night and then Thursday and Friday. That was my reward. I was able to go out and have fun and and have that balance with college as well. Um, So my advice is, you know, turn off the phones, be strategic about your time, maximize the time that you have so that you can go and do the things that you enjoy. Did you have internships? You said you had to work during the summer during that. Was that uh, was that set up through uh, DePaul? No. So I did have one internship when I was actually two internships when I was at DePaul. So those are those are actually really fun stories. So I was not sure when I was in college whether or not my intention was to go into music business when I had graduated. And so I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to do profit or nonprofit music business. So I spent one semester um, at a small record label called Minty Fresh Records, and it's an indie label, very small. And so I was helping them on their marketing side, especially in Chicago radio segments. So when they would sign a new artist and they were trying to get some radio play, a lot of times you start with the college radios and then move from there. So that was something that I did for a semester when I was in school. The other internship that I did, which was really fun, was a industrial um, record label, like heavy metal industrial music, which was totally out of my comfort zone. That's not, you know, music that I would listen to normally. And I was actually able to go on tour with them. So learning tour management and things like that. And that's actually really helped me in my career, learning how to deal with a lot of different personalities, learning how to manage up. So I actually gained that skill set when I was in college doing that internship, touring with a bunch of metal guys. Wow. (laughs) So how far, like, tell me about the tour. Like, where'd you go? So I, they would take interns to different cities. So, you know, they have one group go to Baltimore. I ended up going with them to a music festival in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So um, it, you know, planning out the tour, sticking to a budget. We were screen printing t-shirts, figuring out what giveaways we were going to do, setting up the merch table. So it was quite an experience. That is definitely something that I I will never forget. That sounds really interesting because like, you know, that's a, like a direct application of business to music to the extent that no one thinks that there's a whole uh, industry of thinking, well, we need to know how many size large t-shirts that we need to bring and 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 versus what sells in the south what sells on the east coast uh, and all that how exciting it is to do a an immediate kind of conversion of all of those kind of different things just with the budgets and the merch yes. and all that stuff wow absolutely so and and you know this is this was a small label right so you're having to think about that where this this could actually have a huge impact on the business if you're not strategic about how many size large t-shirts do i need to bring the other issue too is we're not touring in huge tour buses we're touring in 
you know, eight to 12 seater vans. And so space becomes a huge issue too. So again, I don't want to overpack because that means that I'm going to have to pack less for my clothes and, and everybody's going to be cramped in this van driving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. So there's a lot of factors there. What a cool experience. That is so neat. I was wondering, just to go back to the Minty Fresh, what was it? What were the type of things that you would do to help promote like with local news? Or I'm sorry, local music. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, radio stations. What was that like entry point with uh, with talking to them? So for them, they actually so this is you know, they had been around for many years before um, I had come on. So uh, they had had some success with, um, you know, one of the artists that they had was Liz Fair. They had Baruch Assault. So they had some bigger artists that were on the label. And so they were pretty well established when I interned with them. So they actually had an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of college radio stations that they had worked with in the past. And so they would have an email and a phone number and a contact name. And so you, you would literally just go down the list. And a lot of times it would be another intern college person. And so you try to connect, find some common ground and then promote the artist. So what do you really like about them? What's different about them? What kind of sound do they have? So um, it was definitely a process. Um, it could be tedious at times because you're literally going down that that list one by one. But it was a it was a great learning experience for me. Yeah, it's it's tricky. I, I was as you were answering that, I was kind of doing a thought experiment in my head, thinking, would this have been easier for you just maybe four years later when you would have had the tools of Facebook for promotion or you know whatever or Snapchat or whatever kind of where the promotions are but then you wouldn't have had that kind of really grinded out type of you know go through the spreadsheet cold column and, and all that other stuff would you have wanted uh, would have been better to have had the social media tool or would you think it was better that you learned the way you did i i love the way that i i learned i think that it definitely was more personable picking up the phone and having that conversation yeah. creates yeah. A, a relationship i think it's definitely more organic than Hey, here's the album. I'm going to go ahead and share it on my Facebook page. Um, and, you know, we'll get into it later, but it, you know, that I need that skill set in the position that I'm in now managing a hundred people at my facility. So um, I think social media has a place. I, you know, I use it. I, I know that there are benefits, but there are some there are some benefits, in my opinion, to gaining that skill set of cold calling somebody that I don't know and just seeing if I can strike up a conversation. Yeah, that, that's there is that kind of human touch that is not really felt if, if it's not, um, you know, to hear the inflection of the voice, the sincerity and all that. That's that's so true. So, wow, what what a cool a couple of experiences with your internship. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of jealous. That sounds amazing <laughs> that you did. It was really a lot of fun. Neat. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you then you graduate, and you said that you kind of graduated during arguably one of the more uh, unfortunate uh, economic uh, eras of recent memory. Um, what What was your next move after graduating from uh, DePaul? So great question. I graduated in 2010, which, as you mentioned, was, uh, you know, one of the worst recessions that I can remember in my time. And so I really just needed to find a job. And a lot of times, you know, I would go on different job boards and things like that. And everything that I was looking at was three to five years experience. And so I would apply, wouldn't hear anything back. So it was a very different um it was a very different job landscape than what it is right now. So I um, knew some people that were working in manufacturing and customer service. My, my mom actually at the time was working in customer service for manufacturing. And so they had suggested that I apply. They at the time were in the process of shutting down a facility in Carroll Stream and then starting up another facility in Aurora. And so they needed some additional help. They weren't really sure if 
it was going to be something that was long-term, but certainly needed help at the time. So I wasn't working at the time. I decided to try my hand at it. And so I was hired initially as temporary labor for three months. And then I went on to work for, it was Temple Inland at the time. They were acquired by International Paper. So I was hired uh, with Temple Inland uh, June of 20. 2010. So you, you started off as a temp mm -hmm. and what, what did you, how did you get a sense that you had like a really good foothold there to then kind of make the next move? So, you know, for me, I've always been, um, a really hard worker. I think that, um, you know, I am I'm, I'm always under the mindset that if you work really hard, things, great things are going to happen. So I just kind of stuck my nose in the grindstone. Even when I was in college, I worked three jobs. So I'm, I'm not afraid of working hard. And so for me, it was just a challenge. I knew that I was going to have to prove myself. And, you know, my personality is over is being an overachiever. So I have to be the best. So I just worked really hard. And so, you know, they needed a person to do a special project. I would raise my hand. Somebody needs to stay late. Okay, I'll stay late. I'll come in early. And so that, you know, when you have that kind of work ethic and at the time, shutting down that facility and starting up the new one did not go smoothly at all. And so everybody was under a lot of stress and pressure. And so when you had somebody that they could, you know, upper management could lean on, they could be a go-to person that becomes quickly noticed. And so, you know, they realized within three months, we need to, we need to keep her, we need to have her on the team. So that's, that's, uh, that's, I mean, like you said, it paid off, you were able to then uh, get noticed and then earn that trust from uh, upper management. It, we, it, we had mentioned before that there's so many that this company has offered you so many opportunities for training and really kind of rising up uh, through the ranks with merit and all that. Uh, tell me more about those opportunities that you were able to really take advantage of. Absolutely. And, you know, I, this isn't something that I was able to do just on my own. Yes, I worked really hard, but I also had some really great mentors that advocated for me. So I'm the first one to say, yes, I'm a hard worker, but you know, I had some people rooting for me too. So I was in customer service for two years. I decided that I wanted to go into sales. So that was a little bit of um, a little bit of a deviation from what I was doing before. So that would be in front of the customers, opening up new business, things like that. And so I did have my manager advocated for me. Um, and then I had some other people, the sales manager at the time advocated for me as well, thought that I would be a good pick. pick. But at the time, guys, I was 23. And so now looking back, now looking back, you know, I'm 34, going to be 35 now. And I look at, you know, a customer service rep that comes in at 23. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're young. So, yeah. you know, looking back on it, Man, it was a little bit of a risk, I think, for these guys, but they saw something in me. Um, and so I was in bulk packaging sales for two years. And then I really decided to take a detour wanting to go on the manufacturing and production side of that. Um, and for those that aren't familiar with manufacturing, uh, it is mostly male dominated. Uh, a lot of people in the program that I was in were engineers, they had advanced degrees. So if you look at on paper, I'm definitely not a fit for this. Um, just coming from customer service and sales, not being an engineer by trade. Um, and so, but again, I had great people that were advocating for me, the regional HR manager at the time advocated. Um, one of my former managers advocated for me. And so uh, they took a chance. And so I was in this program for a year. And then I was lucky enough to be able to stay in Northern Illinois. We have eight facilities just in the Chicago area. So as I've um, progressed, I've been able to do that um, in Northern Illinois, which has been great. Uh, your company is has a lot of, you said you had eight uh, facilities in Illinois. Is it, where else are you, uh, does the company have different offices or, or, um, uh, um, plants? So we are headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. We have 138 box plants in the U S. So we have a huge reach. 
We also have some facilities in Brazil, some facilities in Europe. Uh, we have we just uh, sold some facilities that we had in um, Asia, but our reach is very large. We have over twenty thousand customers in two hundred and fifty countries. We had nine, over $19 billion in net sales in 2021. So this is a huge company. We're a Fortune 500 company. It's publicly traded. Uh, and on the packaging side, we have about 46% of the market share in the U.S. Wow. Wow. So you must have some opportunities to travel then. Uh, uh, do you, are you able to, uh, have you been able to travel with this, this job? Yes. Yeah, so as I was in the production training program, uh, we would travel every month when I was in that program. So we would go to a different facility um, and kind of observe and see different aspects of the business, which was really nice. Um, and then locally, since we do have those eight facilities here, I uh, have taken on a, a regional role as what they call waste champion. So waste is a huge cost to the company. So learning how to reduce waste. And with that, we travel to a different facility every month. So I'm able to kind of bounce from those eight as well. Um, and then they have corporate roles. So some of the corporate roles, if you get into a lean manufacturing position or you get into a value driver's position that looks at, um, you know, larger projects that, you know, cost reduction or innovation. In that case, you know, you could be traveling internationally. My husband actually works for the company as well. In his previous role, he was doing a lot around the innovation side. So he was going to Mexico on an annual basis. And then we also get um, a lot of our equipment in Europe. So he was able to go to Europe um, at least once a year as well. So it's, it's interesting. I was, uh, you're kind of almost getting to my next question was that you, in management, a lot of it is probably putting out fires when they happen. And so to speak, where, where things go sideways. I know my wife is in uh, logistics uh, and, you know, obviously supply chain is a real headache uh, right now. Right. But I was wondering how much also is that innovation and kind of planning and having vision for other things how 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 do you how do you work that part into your job? So I think that's that's great, and it's actually one of my favorite parts of my job. So, you know, really, when you're managing a facility for international paper, this is a multi-million dollar single plant. So there's a lot of pressure to perform and be innovative. So what you look at when you are a site leader would be what does my plant, what, what do I want to see my plant do within the next five years? And what kind of capital spend am I going to have to do to achieve that? So, um, you know, in the past 24 months in my facility, I've been able to advocate and secure over $6 million in upgrades. So really, it, it becomes almost like a mini business plan because everybody's trying to get capital money from corporate. So you have to create a business plan. You know, what's the current state of my equipment? What's the project justification for it? And what is it going to yield the company? So, you know, then there's pressure as a site leader. Once you secure, you know, I just put in in October a $2 million piece of equipment to perform so that I can get that return on investment. So whatever I committed to, as far as what it's going to gain in production, I need to make sure that we're adhering to that. So that future state, I'm still getting capital funds for whatever vision I have as far as innovation. So this is kind of another how I work question, which is kind of like what, the, what I asked earlier about how you study, how you studied when you were uh, at DePaul. But how do you organize your day? Because there's you, you must be having so many different things yeah. come at you. How do you manage your time in a way that you don't get too bogged down and you're able to stay and give the appropriate bandwidth to each one of these different uh, tasks that you have to uh, accomplish? So as a site leader, as I mentioned, you are responsible for capital planning. The other thing that you're going to be responsible for would be environmental health and science. So and safety, I'm sorry. So 
for that, for environmental health and safety, you're going to be working on any kind of safety initiatives. There are state submissions that you have to be doing on an annual basis. There's monthly tracking. So you're going to be working on that. But the other thing that, again, best laid plans where I may have a to-do list and I'm going to, I have my calendar invites and I have things blocked off, but the one, um, the one area that you're never really sure about what's going to happen is people. So as I mentioned, there are a hundred people in my facility. So I could have my best laid plan for the day, but if somebody comes in and says, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore, or I'm not getting along with the other person on the machine, then, you know, there's a larger issue or, you know, say that somebody, somebody's saying that there's a, you know, claiming a harassment issue or something like that. The people part of it is really the anomaly. You're not sure where it's going to be taking you throughout the day. So it becomes very imperative as a site leader to make sure that you're engaging with your people on a regular basis so that they feel open to come to you. And again, not unique to manufacturing, but retention has been a huge issue um, for us and for, you know, other manufacturers and really, you know, any job at this point. So for us, you know, engagement to me is key in retaining the people that I have. So if I, for me, sorry, <laughs> sorry, Brian. Um, so for me, I think about the operators that I have out on the floor to make an operator. It takes between six months and a year. So if I'm training somebody up for four months and they decide to leave, that's four months that I've lost. Now I have to reset the clock. It's going to take another six months to a year. So the people part is really key. It's the most time consuming, but it really is the most important part of my job, making sure that my team understands what the expectations are and then engaging with the hourly workforce to make sure that we're retaining everybody. It, it, it seems like a really good um, time to kind of ask then, like, how do you then kind of pay it back or as a mentor? Because you, you had mentioned that they were so pivotal in recognizing what your worth was to the company. How do you, uh, how do you then uh, use that now uh, in your role to kind of help shape the, the, the plant to, to the way that you think it operates most efficiently? So for us, really where I look at developing people would be my frontline leaders. So that's going to be my supervisors. So what we do is we will sit down, you know, if there's somebody that really is looking to move up, we meet more often, but at minimum, I'm meeting with every single one of my direct reports for a formal one-to-one -one on a quarterly basis. And so we will sit down and say, you know, what are your long-term career plans? What do you think is going well? What do you think is not going well? Then from there, I will segue into a development plan. So we will work on three core competencies for the next role that they want to go into that maybe they're not, they're not doing great in. This is a development opportunity for them. And then we work on them together. And so that's something when we sit down on a monthly or quarterly basis, hey, let's look at our development plan. How are you doing in these different areas? And so that's something that I really pride myself in. I have been able to grow hourly employees into supervisors, supervisors into superintendents and superintendents into quality managers. And so that's really how I pay it back. Um, I, I pride myself in being able to spot talent because, you know, I really kind of came from the ground up in the company. I was a temp and then kind of bounced around. And so I do feel like I can spot talent in somebody pretty early. And so that gives me the opportunity to develop them into that role. So for me right now, I have a quality manager. So my intention is I want that quality manager to know their job really well. And then when they're comfortable in their role, I'm going to have them start to get some exposure into my role so that when they transition from a quality manager to a plant manager, it's going to be seamless for them. And it makes them look good. And it makes me look good as a manager as well. <laughs> it's got to be tricky though, because you're, you don't want them to also transfer to a different plant after you did all the work to get them to to uh, to, to 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 grow the way that you wanted to. Like, hey, you can't go now. So that does happen yeah. uh, quite often. You know, 
it, it's a bittersweet, right? If I have a great, you know, great talent, like right now I have a great talent in my quality manager, I would hate to see him go, but there's also some pride in being able to say, you know what, I contributed to their success. Yeah, that's great. Have you, so you've been with the company for, for a decade now, has there been, what have been some of the type of technology advances that you, that have been really uh, helpful for your industry? So for us, there has been huge speed ad- advances. And so to kind of go through this and to put it into perspective, our corrugator, which makes flat sheets that that get converted into boxes. So it's going to have, you know, the two flat pieces of paper and then the wavy part would be your sheet. When I started at this facility, we were averaging 550 lineal feet per minute. Now with the new machine that I have, we're running 850 lineal feet per minute. The converting equipment that I have is older. So we're averaging about 150 boxes per minute. However, there are other facilities in this region that have newer equipment that can run 400 boxes per minute. So if you think about that, you can make a truckload of bad boxes pretty quickly. So it becomes very (laughs) critical to make sure that you're doing your quality checks. And there have been innovations as far as that's concerned too. glue detection. So making sure that the box is glued together and then also innovation around um, if you're in a high graphics plant for displays that you could see, you know, at the stores and things like that, there are camera systems to look at the print, but by and large, the facilities are, eyeballs to to the box to make sure that the quality is there. And you had mentioned that I had been with the company for a decade as well. So our customer mindset has changed and their expectation has changed even in just the decade that I've been doing this. So we used to measure quality by something called defective parts per million. So for every million boxes that I produce, how many are bad? And so that was a good measure for quality for a long time. Now our customers have innovation as well. So they have case directors that will actually open up the box and fill product in them. So they're looking at number of stops on their machine. So they're less worried about, you know, hey, I had 50,000 50, box order. You only had two boxes that were bad. From my perspective, that's pretty good quality. For them, they say, they argue, well, no, that was two stops on my machine. That cost me 10 minutes of downtime. And so the way that they're looking at quality has changed as well. That's interesting that 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 it, we forget that it's not the product, but it's also the actual time that then factors into the cost. I think like that's just something that would be something that we wouldn't, you would see, but I'm just, I'm, you know, for the lay person kind of thinking about how it's all made. That's, that's really interesting. How do you forecast? Like, so how, like, is it consistently, let's say X amount of boxes per day, or do you begin to amp up? Like say, Oh, well, we're getting close to, um, the holiday season. Yeah. So we have to make more boxes. Like, is it, I mean, does it go through ebbs and flows in production or is it consistent? So if you were to ask me that question three years ago, I could tell you with certainty what our forecast looks like. COVID changed the landscape drastically for us. So if you think about it at the time, when everything was shut down, everybody was ordering from Amazon or Walmart or Target and everything ships in a box. So while some manufacturers or other people were furloughed, laid off, we were busier than ever. We had too much volume at that point. We couldn't keep up. And so when everything was shut down, we didn't even shut down for a single day. We were considered part of the essential supply chain. And so we kind of doubled down and we were working a lot of Saturdays to just try and accommodate because, you know, the masks, the medical supplies, all of that ships in a box. So, you know, we had a lot of food and beverage. We have a lot of food and beverage customers as well. A lot of people are cooking, you know, we're cooking at home more. And so with that, there was a huge demand. And so there really, you know, 2020 to 2022, there was no slow season for us. We were full-fledged working probably 20 plus Saturdays uh, in a year to try and keep up with this demand. Now, because the market 
from an economic perspective has started to, to soften a little bit. We are seeing the volume soften a little bit and get a, a more normal pre 2020 is where we're kind of at right now. Um, but again, you know, the circumstances could change at any time. So I can't tell you with certainty where, where the market is going to be at this point. Oh, that's so interesting. I, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's like, uh, yeah, for sure. So, um, so where do you see yourself maybe in five, 10 years? So, you know, I've been with this company for, like you mentioned, a long time, 12 going on 13 years. I know that's rare. Um, but I do, if there's something that I would like people to take away from, there is value in finding a good company and continuing to grow with them. I think it opens a lot of doors for you if you have that longevity and that loyalty with the company, which I think, you know, when I look at the workforce that's coming through, that's lacking a bit. Um, I'm seeing the resumes, you know, two or three years job jumping a lot where, for me personally, there's value in longevity. So in five to 10 years, I will see, I see myself still working for the company. My next role would be a, a general manager position for a single plant and then complex general manager. So my goal probably in the next five years would be a complex general manager and the next 10 would be a regional general manager. Now that may change. There are opportunities where you know, my, like I mentioned, my husband works for the company as well. Uh, we have talked about the possibility of doing a two year stint in Europe if we wanted to. What a great experience oh, would wow. that be for my yeah, son? Yeah. So, you know, with, with the company, you can go a lot of different avenues. You know, we've talked about the possibility of moving to Memphis and working for corporate because they don't have a lot of people there that have plant infield experience to kind of lean on for expertise around what is going to work, what's not going to work for innovation. So we, there's a lot of different avenues. If I were to take the traditional route, it would be a complex general manager in five years and then um, a regional general manager. But, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, maybe deviating again and, and trying something different as well. That's exciting that you have those opportunities, but I think that is also predicated on like what you said, showing that type of loyalty to the company and that your longevity there uh, has really allowed for you to really, you know, I could take the corporate job or the, the, the home office job in Memphis, but wow, to get that experience to go uh, to Europe. Where were the offices in Europe that would get your uh, your vote? So they do have some offices in Ireland and I have family in Ireland. It's also awesome. English speaking. So that's something yeah. that I would definitely be open to. Um, they have a director of manufacturing role that comes up for what Europe, which is, they refer to it as EMEA with an IP. So if that role were to come up, that's certainly something that we may consider. Um, and like I said, I just think that it would be a really good experience. Uh, typically, it would be two to three years, and then um, you can come back and work for the company in whatever role that they may have open at the time. Oh, that would, well, Isn't that pretty cool? That'd be amazing. Oh, that's so cool. Yes. I, I totally forgot to ask this prior. I think I know how you're going to answer this, but tell me more about your experience at DePaul uh, as a student. Absolutely. So DePaul, I look back on that time at DePaul was with such fondness, really. Um, I felt like I became a very well-rounded person being at DePaul. You know, that's really the first time that I was out on my own trying to balance, you know, uh, working and then um, studying and going to classes. I also... Um, you know, was involved in some of the clubs and stuff that they had at DePaul as well. But really, you know, the friends that I made, I'm still friends with now. Um, just going through that experience, I think, you know, being in the music school and it being so small, you knew all of your professors, you knew all of the other students. And so there really was that kinship there that, you know, I still reach out to my friends from DePaul today. That's just, I, I just had an interview uh, a couple of weeks ago with a student who graduated from DePaul a couple of years ago and just 
again, evangelized about how, what a great experience it was uh, and all that. That's just so, so great. I, I'm thinking about this too. My son's a uh, sophomore in high school. So I'm, 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 I'm perking up with more interest about where, where my student or where the former WeGo grads have gone. We're like, okay, tell me more about that. Yeah, so absolutely. Pocketing those uh, experiences to, to use that as a, as a uh, selling point for sure. Well, and I think too, what I really liked about DePaul was the classroom sizes were a little bit smaller. So my music classes certainly were, we were about, I would say 12 to 15 students per, you know, per class. But even my business classes, I would say there were no more than 50 people. And so the professors knew us, which to me was a huge advantage. Well, Aaron, this has been awesome. You've given me so many great ideas. Anyone who's going to listen to this is going to be really just so impressed with uh, everything that you've accomplished. Uh, it's just, it's so awesome. And I always like uh, bringing the interview to a conclusion by asking the guest uh, if they have any tips for success for current Wildcats. What would you tell Absolutely. Them? You know, for me, my journey has not been point A to point B. I've kind of taken some detours. I would say take chances, take strategic risks, get outside of your comfort zone. It makes you grow as a person. The other thing that I would say, you know, as you transition into your career and even in college, make sure that you're developing relationships and you have access to people of influence. That has been huge for me. Um, you know, in college and in my career as well. When I graduated from DePaul, um, having those contacts with my professors, I've been able to keep in touch with them. And throughout my career now, you know, I, I keep in contact with, you know, vice presidents of the company and, and things like that. So, you know, making sure that you brought in your circle of influence and then, you know, getting out of your comfort zone has been huge for me. Yeah, that's so great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much and best of luck. And I can't wait to find out at some point whether or not you made it over to Ireland or somewhere else to, to continue uh, your career in the, in the company that way. It's just so exciting. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Do us a favor and spread the word about Weagle Places by sharing our interviews with other Wildcats on social media. If you want to search past episodes or stay current, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere where you get your podcasts. Just search We Go Places. And you can also follow We Go Places on Facebook and Twitter at We Go Places Podcast. If you know of a former Wildcat who would be a great guest, send me a direct message on Facebook, Twitter, or even at school email at Brian Turnbow at d94.org.